0: Mm, Hello, I've been expecting you. Hello everybody, hello film fans. As I've gotten into the habit of saying, it was never planned, but that's the habit I've fallen into. Humans are creatures of habits. Hello film fans is how I'm going to start, well, how I'm going to continue to open these podcasts. Um, Yep, if you can't see on the TV, we are doing Get Out today. Uh, Jordan Peele's directorial debut, that dude is having an absolute stellar career as a director of feature films at the moment, Get Out, fantastic, Us, fantastic, the new one, Nope, fantastic. I know that the latter two, Us and Nope, have had mixed reviews from people, and hopefully one day I'll get round to... Uh, analyzing them and maybe if you previously didn't like them I will tell you what I loved about them and it might change your viewpoint on it but that's not the aim of these podcasts I don't really care what your viewpoint is and actually no feel free to share your viewpoints on films with me you know jump into the old comment section on the socials or email the email which is still movie mondays at hotmail.com or something like that it's on the social medias just find it or just go on the social medias, which are all now Chatting Script. So Instagram is at Chatting Script and Twitter is at Chatting Script. Just hit me up on there. It's easier for everybody involved. If you want if you want to uh, request any films for me to analyze or any TV shows, if you want to debate me on anything, uh, if you think what I've chatted was complete script, <laughs> was complete rubbish, then hit me up, dispute it. Let's uh, yes. Anyway, um, so this is get out with the fantastic Daniel Kaluuya. Literally, in my opinion, the best actor of his generation. That dude is. Just speak about his performances quickly. Is like he's so naturalistic. He's okay. If you've listened to my other podcasts, you've heard about me talk about people like De Niro, where or Brando even, where it's just they're so living in the truth of their character that they don't need to show the audience what they're trying to portray. They're just living it. And then it's up to the audience to, you know, uh, interpret that whichever which way. Whichever which way? Sure, why not? Whichever which way they want to. Uh, And that um, really... You know, I think that's so. Um, this is you, the best actors do that. I think you know, there's nothing. Not discrediting any actors that are real, sort of like showy with their emotions. Sometimes it's exactly what you need, uh, and it can be really effective. But I just think you know, the more nuanced, naturalistic, uh, sort of just just being. You know, they're they're invested in their character, and then their character is acting moment to moment to moment. They're not using certain elements of the story or the script or anything to like showcase their own acting ability anyway that's uh yeah that's enough praise for Daniel Kaluuya I'm sure I'll praise him more throughout this let's crack on with this uh okay uh, yeah actually as well please do um, subscribe to anywhere you're listening to this podcast I think on Spotify it's called following uh, on Google or Amazon or whatever Hit the follow or the subscribe. If you're on the YouTube channel, please hit the subscribe. It would just help me out, Um, you know, raise sort of the profile of the pod. Uh, Follow me on the social medias. Like I said, it's at Chatting Scripts, so you never miss an episode. I tend to drop trailers on there as well. So if maybe I'm analyzing a film you haven't heard of or seen, um, and you're like, oh, I don't know, maybe I'll check that out. Just give the trailer a little watch, and it'll show you what you're getting yourself in for. Um, Yeah, anyway let's crack on show oh and there's a good chance that this podcast may get flagged because I'm not going to wear headphones today because if I remember I've only seen this film once before and I loved it but uh, I remember it being quite um, like the use of sound on it was quite uh, important to the you know the the gravitas of this film or like executing what this film wants to execute which is you know it's quite that's the case with most films to be honest with you Um, but it occurred to me when i was editing my last one only god forgives that i was spending quite a lot of time trying to describe the soundscape to people and i'm just going to try this this time and hopefully it doesn't get flagged and and taken down and blocked or anything if that does happen i'll try and do a re-edit where i take out those parts where the sound is being played or whatever and we'll just have to just have to see Like I say, you know, a lot of this pod stuff is, especially the video component part, is, you know, new to me in the sense that I'm just trying stuff out, throwing shit at the wall and seeing what sticks. So anyway, that's enough rambling. Let's get rolling. Okay. As opening shots go. I really like that. God, that was a bit Garth Brooks, wasn't it? I really like that just you know the orange of the street lamps the blue of what I'm assuming would be the moonlight it's been slowly tracking backwards there's crickets we can hear someone talking there um sounds like they're on a phone or something and they're you know confused about sort of where they are or the place they're trying to find or anything so straight away you're a bit like ah a little bit of fish out of water thing but just a real nice simple opening shot and there's like a can you hear the undertone Don't know if you can hear that undertone, but there's like a humming of a just an unnerving bit of music. So, like I said before, establishing shots important sets the scene, lets the audience know what's happening. Also, Lakeith Stanfield, this dude, uh, let's get a better shot of him. Lakeith Stanfield, um, ah, uh, what's that amazing film he did with Emma Thompson where they're like salespeople? Thank you for calling, I think. I think it's called Thank You for Calling. Uh, this dude, Lakeith Stanfield, is insane as well like top tier actor if you haven't seen him in some stuff check out some stuff i'm pretty sure thank you for calling is is what it's called it's something like that just imdb lakeith stanfield and emma thompson they're in the film together it's it's a brilliant film um but yeah this dude whenever i see him he never misses he never misses his quality and this has been a nice one so far you know from the opening shot to him the car going past there hasn't been any any cuts at all nice little wanna you hear that that car radio is playing um run rabbit run rabbit run 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 so straight away a bit building up a bit of a uh, eeriness um his performance is also selling it as well so like not just to praise his acting but you know, if, if his performance in this, so this would be important for the director to communicate to the actor if the actor wasn't sort of like um, doing it, would be that like you need to be demonstrating or, you know, performing with a certain amount of like anxiety or uncertainty in, you know, walking down that street, tar- trying to find the destination uh, so that the audience then empathizes with you and starts to feel that, you know nervousness and that uncertainty Uh, so it all builds and works together the you know the crickets in the background the run rabbit soundtrack of the car the way it's just sort of parked there and is like creeping up on him all these all these layers ogres are like onions with layers okay and that's the first cut we've had so all those wallows have been apart from the establishing shot but then Lakeith Stanfield walks into the frame and then it's all pretty much quite tight on him. We're looking at like a, essentially a close-up because it's shoulders to head more or less. Sorry, I'm still getting over that flu that I had the other week. I'm pretty much out of it now, but all this cold weather has just meant my nose has been running like a tap. So I do apologize if there's sniffing and, you know, gross noises throughout this podcast. But, you know, time waits for no man and I'm going to get these podcasts done regardless of health. So I'm basically I'm a trooper and you know praise me okay <laughs> uh so this is the first cutaway we've had um and the fact that all these other shots of laKeith were like i say close ups and then were cut to a, a nice big wide for me that sort of shows that he's like almost like lost to the audience now like he's he's in the distance so he's out of our um like ability to sort of help him or save him like he's that's that he's almost gone kind of thing and then, I don't know if you heard that, but the, like, the Run Rabbit score was still playing. And it was, like, taking over the um, the audio soundtrack, essentially. There wasn't a lot else. And then when he slams down the boot after he stuffed Lakeith in there, that slam cut the music. And all of a sudden, we get the, f- the first use of the eerie violin score in this. Like, listen to this. Yeah. I want to say as well, Caleb Landry-Jones, also an absolute stellar actor, um... If you haven't seen him in a lot, he was in this. Uh, he was, uh, what was the character's name in, you know, the new X-Men movies they're doing with First Class and Days of Future Past and all that. I think it's Banshee. He's just, his power is like this supersonic scream thing. Um, but probably one of the best films he's done other than this in terms of his individual performance and the quality of the film. Not that those new X-Men films aren't great. They're they're pretty good. Um is Three Billboards Outside Ed- Ebbing, Missouri. Uh, he plays that... Oh, I can't remember what his job role is, but he's sort of opposite the... like an office kind of guy um, opposite the police station, and he has a bit of a uh, scuffle, we'll say, with Sam Rockwell, who plays one of the police officers. Um, yeah, he's he's class in that film. He's a, He's a real great actor as well. There's so many awesome young... Actors in this that are like you know they're already fairly established, but like you know they're sort of getting their, getting their chops in, cutting their teeth pretty well. Just how unnerving this score is. It's proper like, almost Friday the e with the whispering, you know, that kill, kill, kill and all that. And who doesn't love childish Gambino, man? So I'll, I'll pause it here because I'm worried that at the moment, childish Gambino's um, ah, oh, it's not stay woke, Redbone is playing uh, over the top and what a song. But when a song that sort of, you know, famous, I worry that if I put that out, it will get, yeah, as part of the pod, it will get flagged like straight away. Um, I love Jonas Gambino. He's amazing. Uh, But these shots establishing this um, apartment, it's giving us a real sense of like, um, what's the... What's the word I'm looking for? Kind of like a real quaint, nice, happy home sort of life setting that they've got here, you know? Everything's really neat. They've got all their anemones, amenities? Centipedes? I don't know. They've got all their stuff. It all looks nice and catered for. They're not wanting for things. It's clean. Uh, It's such a really nice apartment. Loads of natural light coming in there. Goddamn. Yeah. So, you know... I feel like that's a precursor to, you know, the ultimate sort of like downhillness that happens. You know, like it—we're starting all nice and happy and cheery and all this good shit. And it could only go downhill from here. So the scene we just had back then um, was them at the apartment and him sort of saying to her like, "Hey, I'm gonna go meet your parents with you. Do they know that I'm black?" And her being like, "It's not an issue. Like, my parents aren't racist, or you know, just." Softening any like concerns he may have had and it's a real sweet intimate scene with them like the sort of more uh, Vulnerable they get with each other during that scene the tighter the shots get on them, you know, it sort of starts with mediums and Kind of wides because they're on like Separate parts of the room they get a bit closer. We switch to mediums They get more intimate and vulnerable talking about this important stuff and the cameras get uh, Closer to them, you know close-ups and it's nice intimate. It's really brightly and softly lit So there's no like harsh lines and shadows on their faces and stuff. It's all real sort of soft um, lighting, but still really bright. So it's just completely, like, safe and happy and is, of course, a juxtaposition to where the story goes and also leads the... Spoiler alert, if you haven't seen this film, by the way, but it also leads the audience into a false sense of security about this bitch. That's all I'm going to say for now. Yeah! Yeah! jump scares motherfucker see some people think jump scares are cheap but when they're done well like that where you're completely unexpecting any sort of jump scare to happen excuse me one moment jump scares when they're telegraphed what i mean by telegraphed is in like say in like boxing for example if you're gonna go throw a punch and you like you know really telegraph the movement's coming and then you throw the punch the other boxer knows it's coming because you've telegraphed it so when you telegraph a jump scare, for example, it's when you're like, you know, you might have a shot of a, a character in a in a house where you know there's a killer about, and you you it's been established that the killer is like, you know, in one of the rooms near them or whatever, and they're walking through, uh, the the house. Pardon me. And they like, you know, look around a corner, and you're expecting the scare, and then. As the camera cuts back around to the person, the killer's behind them, and then that's the jump scare kind of thing. It's telegraphed, so you can preempt it, so it's not as shocking, and then it's a little bit cheap. But like that, where we literally just had them driving down the road, sort of bantering with each other, being all happy and flirty, and then all of a sudden, bam! They hit a deer, and it's a big noise, you know. So the big that's why I wanted you to hear the sound this time you get the big thing sort of straight away of the noise and everything and the car screeching as they slam on the brakes and everything and then this awesome wide shot again not quite symmetrical um probably wasn't intended to be symmetrical but it sort of really establishes that they're like way out in the sticks with not a whole lot of help or aid should anything bad happen see look at his performance right here he's not he wasn't like telegraphing that he's telegraphing and he wasn't you know showcasing that he's like looking for something he's not like doing any scouring he's just looking he's just being he's not showing off to the audience like oh look how good i am at searching for the thing that hit our car he's just looking for it naturalism man underrated in cinema these days and now i I think he's seen what it is that it that it's here and he for me there he looks like he feels sad about it like he feels maybe a little bit guilty or he's sad that you know um the the deer i think it's a deer that they've hit is is dying you know Look that's a to me that looks like a sad expression but he's not you know showing off to the camera like oh we hit a deer he's just man that sucks we hit a deer you know what i mean you don't know what I mean? Figure it out. I do like this though, how this is really building the tension because we still haven't had a good look at it. We could see it then, but it was out of focus. Now we can see it, but with this score building up in the background, it's all very like unnerving. You just think, like, what? What's going through his head now? Like he's just had that sort of weird connection with a with a dying animal. Um. And he's just sort of pondering that. And with the unnerving score, it's like... I don't know. Is that like an omen? That maybe he's moving towards something that he shouldn't be moving towards? I mean, maybe I'm reading that into it because I've seen the film before. But, yeah. Never knew. <laughs> I paused that on an amazing shot of her. Important story beat there for her as well. Um, so after they hit the deer... Um, they obviously call the police to report it or everything and the officer's like oh yeah it's fine but you need to call animal control next time instead Uh, and then Daniel Kaluuya who's um, not even having that conversation with the officer she is because she was the driver Uh, the police officer asks him for for his ID (laughs) and uh, she straight away is like hang on why you don't You shouldn't have to give your ID. And obviously it's like, uh, it's a bit of a social commentary on the whole idea of, you know, um, police officers, be it in America or the UK or sort of anywhere, having prejudices towards people of color and, you know, sort of using their power, you know, the power of the police um, in a kind of racist way, um, which does happen, happens, you know, happens. It's reported on, I'm not going to get into it too much, but it's reported on countless times in America and it happens way more in the UK than you would believe. Um, If you don't believe me on that, do some research on it and educate yourself. I'm not going to get into it right now. Um, But it's an important story beat for her to jump to his defense because, like I said, in that opening scene, or not opening scene, that secondary scene, where she's talking about her family, you know, not being racist and that they will be welcoming to him and they won't be, you know judgmental or anything about his color um again she's jumping to his defense and she's being supportive so we are it's leading the audience to like her and know that she is on his side Uh, which obviously spoiler alert if you haven't seen the film i'm going to spoil something a bit of a twist near the end uh so close your ears for about 20 seconds if you don't want to know is that um, she is not a good person. (laughs) Uh, And this is all an act and a mask. But obviously from the audience where you're being drip-fed these moments where she is being a good person, that's obviously the impression you're going to have. So it's important story beats, and it's important that those are written through the script. So this is interesting. I haven't quite formulated what what I think about it yet, but since they pulled up, the shots of, we've only had this wide shot of this house and him walking up the stairs and then greeting the parents sorry them too. both of them walking up the stairs and greeting the parents uh and i i guess that's similar yeah yeah okay i've formulated it now you ready here we go you know the first uh first first things first Ah, yes sean connery sure what the shot is representative of is that opening scene where we had laKeith Stanfield being taken away into the car and uh slammed in the boot and the shot was very wide and I'm going to stop this now um and that was him being lost you know like the audience can't help him he's that, that ship has sailed kind of thing it's reminiscent of that it's like ah he's walking through the threshold the threshold of you know, Sanctuary being able to escape and, you know, going too far away from the audience and things is. He's in danger now. That's what I'm reading into that wide shot. Might just be a wide shot because that property's fucking amazing, but I'm reading that into it. Oh, of course, yeah. And then it, it pull as, as they go through the door, it pulls back to reveal the, uh, the groundskeeper who. This is going to sound bad if you haven't seen the film, but it's important, and it's actually a story beat in the film. We have to acknowledge the fact that this groundskeeper is black, okay? That becomes important. I'm not just pointing it out for the sake of pointing out someone's colour. I'm not that ignorant, trust me. But that's why we're pulling back into this wide. And maybe as well, it's it's marring... The fact that we haven't had any close-ups yet on the parents is it's marring them with a sense of... Um, mystery or uncertainty like because we haven't we're not in a personal distance to them yet in terms of you know being right up close to them with some close-ups and stuff we don't know what they really look like we don't know how they are we don't know if we can trust them you know so maybe it's it's also that maybe it's a multitude of things maybe jordan peele just wanted to do a wide, and i'm reading way too much into it this film just it makes you uncomfortable with okay so they told the parents that they hit a deer on the way and then the dad is going full like there's two ways you can read into this or maybe it's a combination of the two he's going full like dad mode trying to make silly jokes he's being it sounds like he's being sarcastic. Oh, yeah, one deer, one dead deer, 100,000 more to go. They're like rats. They're taking over the countryside. I don't like them, blah, blah, blah. You could read into that. Oh, he's just being silly, and he's trying to make them feel better about the fact that they accidentally killed a deer and blah, blah, blah. He's not actually like anti-deer. But there's a shot. Uh, shall I rewind to it? As he's talking, it's that shot. This is, I literally paused it as he said, they're like rats. That's Daniel Kaluuya's face. And to me, maybe I'm just projecting this onto it because I know the broader context of the film. But it's almost like he's hearing the dad talk about deer. But is the dad using that as like a cover up or a metaphor for talking about people that aren't white? I don't know, maybe I'm reading way too much into that, maybe this is a bit too heavy, but, you know, a lot of this film is a social commentary on racism and, you know, the ignorance of white people towards people of colour. You know, uh, again, I'm well aware that I'm incredibly white, (laughs) so, like, I don't want any of this to come across like I'm white splaining anything, but that's what... The sort of uh, the undertones and the the commentary of this film is, and that's partly what makes it a fantastic film. Just speaking in about horror movies in in broader strokes, I do find that the best horror movies are the ones with some sort of social commentary. So let's look at George A. Romero's uh, Night of the Living Dead and Dawn of the Dead. The 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 so the Night of the Living Dead, if you're not aware, was nineteen. I want to say 68 or 69. It was black and white. And that was the first film to introduce what you would naturally now think of when someone says zombies. So here's a little bit of a cinema history for you if you're not aware. Prior to that film, any use of zombies always came from like a voodoo sort of I want to say culture but that feels like the wrong word um it was always inspired by some sort of voodoo like white zombie um which is not only Rob Zombie's band before Rob Zombie went solo as Rob Zombie but it's also a film released in the 50s where um this voodoo person um I don't know what you call them a shaman voodoo shaman um basically like casts spells and shit and Brain—it's essentially like a brainwashing thing. Turns people into zombies in the in the brain dead sense of being a zombie, not the undead sense of being a zombie. So, <clears throat> George A. Romero comes along and introduces zombies in that living dead, flesh eating, that kind of zombie. You know, the sh- slow shuffle, that and all that shit. You know, The Walking Dead wouldn't be The Walking Dead if George A. Romero didn't do that to zombies. Uh. So, but the social commentary of that film, Night of the Living Dead, is um, about racism. So the central character is a black guy and um, a lot throughout the film he's subjugated to, you know, judgment or straight up racism or not treated as equal or not trusted or not listened to or not respected as much as, like, the rest of the white cast. Um, And then, spoiler alert, for the very end of that film, so, again, plug your ears if you don't want to hear it, but at the very end of the film, he's literally, like, last man standing after pretty much everyone else has been killed by the zombies, and a wave of, uh, like, sheriffs and police officers come sort of sweeping through the countryside where the film is set, and um, see him, like, hiding out. They're killing zombies left, right, and centre, these sheriffs, right? Just trying to clear the landscape, basically. They see him sort of hiding out in this house, peering, th- I think he's peering through a window, it's been a few years since I've seen it, he's peering through a window with a gun, like, trying to see if he's okay and stuff, you know, checking if the coast is clear or whatever, and the sheriffs are like, oh yeah, there, there there's a zombie, yeah, quick, sh- shoot, shoot that guy, uh, you know, just, it's, it's really apparently clear that the sheriffs are literally just like, oh, here's an opportunity to kill a black guy, just because they are racist kind of thing, you know? Uh, so that's the social commentary in on that one, whereas Dawn of the Dead, the sequel to that, is in color and is widely considered, like, the best zombie movie ever made. Um, Zack Snyder did uh, a remake of it in the early 2000s. Equally brilliant. Maybe not equally brilliant, but it's brilliant. Uh, but either way, the commentary of the original Dawn of the Dead is the, is the one where they're trapped in the shopping mall And it's a commentary on consumerism because there's so many shots throughout the film where you just have all these zombies wandering around this shopping mall, uh, you know, walking past like various department stores, jewelry stores, electronic stores, all these things just brain dead, being zombies and that. And it's basically a reflection of Kind of, it wouldn't be too different if these people weren't zombies. If they were still people walking around, you know. So, the that very long drawn out point was saying that the, in my opinion, the stand out horror films do tend to have some sort of social commentary, and this one in particular is very, very, very much about. Like, if you didn't pick up on that when you watched it, then wake up. But it's very, very much about race and you know yeah I think I've said enough let's carry on but this shot yeah this shot to me just around that back this shot to me is like him hearing undertones and the dad talking about the dead deer it's him hearing the undertones of you talking about deer or you talking about black people what are you doing here man that exchange that exchange was great this this little exchange watch this exchange so he's the dad is giving Chris a tour of the house Is there anything more boring, more unnecessary than when you go to someone's house and they give you a tour of the fucking house? Show me where we're hanging out. Show me where the toilet is and show me where I can, you know, refill my glass, you know, with like water or beer or whatever it is that we're doing, whatever the, whatever the hangout is that we're happening. Show me those things. Where can I sit? Where do I get food and drink? And where do I piss? You don't need to give me a tour, right? I hate it. It's so stupid. All it is is an excuse for whoever's house it is to brag about all this shit I have. Fuck you. But look at this exchange. He's like, save me. She's like, I can't. And he's like, oh, I just have to tolerate this shit. (laughs) Oh, man. Such expert written dialogue from Jordan Peele writer and director if you want to wear of this film. So they just um they just saw a um on this grand tour that he's doing he had the the photo of his old man as in the, the dad's old man um basically being an olympic athlete uh and the story that he gives it is um he was beaten to a medal by Jesse Owens the guy who won olympic gold in front of Hitler in what would that have been, like the 1930-something Olympics? I don't know what it was, 38, 39, something like that. Um And the dad's like, oh, yeah, you know, brilliant. Fuck all that Aryan master race bullshit. Um, and he goes, yeah, my old man nearly got over it, it which is sort of, you know, like a little subtle joke. And then he's like, oh, that's the basement. We, we had to seal it off. There was a lot of black mold. He, like, emphasizes black when he says black mold. So that might just be me reading into it, but you're like, hmm, okay. But again, because I know the broader context of this film and what this family are actually like. And then they walk into the kitchen and he says, oh, this was my mother's favorite place. We keep a little piece of her in there. And then the person Daniel Kaluuya is looking at right now is... Uh, the housekeeper looks like a housekeeper got rubber gloves on and some sort of like you know penny apron thing Uh, and it's a black woman so he's seen the black groundskeeper now he's seen a black housekeeper so he's like rich white people all the help around the house seems to be black so you know there's like all these little drip feeding moments of oddness and strange not play on words but strangely chosen strange choices of words from the dad and that so that's a important sort of suspicious story beat as well he says as they walk out into this huge garden the dad says to chris um the nearest house is way across the lake total privacy just an important story beat because that's telling the audience like if shit goes down there is not a lot of help anywhere Again, subtle hints that this family aren't um, what they say they are. This lovely woman is coming around, refilling everybody's glass. No one is even, apart from Daniel Kaluuya, no one is even acknowledging that she's there, never mind saying thank you for filling up the glass. Little subtle story beats. That, That scene, like, I don't know, this... Again, I don't want to come off like I'm splaining or anything or, or acting like I've got any sort of like authority to talk on this in any way. Um, <clears throat> but it's, I want to phrase it as it's like an educational scene for white people to sort of learn or realize that like when you're talking to a person of color, you know, black, brown, Asian, whatever, any person of color, they are more than the color of their skin, right? So this scene, you've got Caleb Landry-Jones talking across the table uh, to Daniel Kaluuya and asking him, "Do you, are you into UFC, MMA? Pardon me, that type of stuff. And he's like, ah, oh, no, too brutal for me. And then Caleb's character says, uh, with your frame and your genetic makeup, if you really trained, you'd be a fucking beast. So what he's doing is saying that like based on literally the fact that you are a large black person, if you trained hard, you'd be a good fighter. Where it's like how do I how do I explain this without sounding like I'm fucking white explaining this or like pretending I have I don't have any authority or any like right to to really sort of comment on this. But what I can say from experience you know i've I've probably been guilty of it myself. I definitely know friends and family that have been guilty of it, but this scene is a bit of an eye opener in the sense that like you shouldn't you shouldn't do that <laughs> ultimately, it's pretty ignorant to do that to just make statements or assumptions about someone based on their ethnicity it's just just don't do it you know um i don't really and this is again the social commentary thing i was talking about in in the makeup of this film and why this film is good because it that it ultimately feeds into a sinister motive from uh claire's family is it claire is that the girl's name in this i can't remember now um so yeah it's 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 all part of the makeup of the story uh but yeah you know it's setting the fucked upness and look at him he is like this bullshit again every fucking white person i have to speak to is going to you know they're not seeing the person underneath they're only seeing the exterior i don't know i don't know if i worded that right or if that came across really ignorant but it was supposed to be done with Empathy and understanding. So hopefully it came across that way. You hear how great that use of sound was? Um, well, hopefully the mic picked up the speaker. I moved the speaker there earlier. Hopefully that helps. So he's there sort of dazing. And the shots of him in, his, in the bedroom there sort of dozing. There's the sound of a fly buzzing around. And then it cuts to a sort of like a, not quite a black and white, but sort of like grayed out shot. Um... It was more or less the same shot of when he was approaching the the deer in the bushes that they hit on their way to the house, and then the deer is like, you know, moaning. It was doing that like, and then that matches the sound of the fly buzzing, and then all of it is cut by him slapping his face to sort of slap the fly. Just an unnerving, sort of unsettling uh, layering of that soundscape, um, and not. Quite a jump scare, but almost a jump scare. Jesus Christ, this, oh, I'm I'm doing that thing again where I over-talk about the first, like, half an hour of the film and then I have to, like, skip over some shit at the end just to, you know, not make the podcast last three hours. Maybe jump. That was a good jump scare. Um, as he's walking through the house, you might have heard the ding. Then as what was her name? Was it Gloria? Georgina? Began with a G. Either way. She walked through the the background of the hallway as he's on his way out to smoke. See that, that is so unnerving. Like, let's go back a little bit. So we just so he's walking out in the uh, <clears throat> in the garden to have a cheeky cigarette. There's nothing there. And then, as soon as we cut back and see this dude sprinting at him, the violins. So that violin's mixed with him just giving it legs straight towards Daniel Kaluuya. So unnerving, like, and it's only intercut between this and Daniel Kaluuya's sort of reaction of like, what the fuck is this dude just running straight at me? It's just really unnerving, like, I think it's the fact that the camera holds for quite a long time on this. So there's no, like, reprieve from it. And any reprieve you do get is Daniel Kaluuya looking a bit concerned. So there's no sort of chance for the audience to feel like we're able to escape it, you know? Look at him go. But even just that, look at at Daniel Kaluuya's... He's not overselling that he's scared or intimidated by this. He's just sort just. You know, he's he shuffled, let me press play and hopefully I paused it at the right time, but he's sh- just shuffling back a bit. Look. See, just shuffles back a bit. Just unnerving, weird shit. You hear the noise of the, the spoon scraping around that teacup? The gentle ting, ting, and the shhh. You know, as it hits the rim of it, ting, ting, and shhh, as it scrapes the rim of it. It's important sound layering. Now we get it, that was a close-up just then of the teacup. So now it's drawing attention to the fact that she's still staring. Why is she still stirring it? So now the camera's starting to move in as she's like broken down his defences and she's her questions are working and prying at him. This is the hypnotizing hip, hypnotic scene, the scene where she does some hypnosis, the hypnosis scene. There we go. The camera's starting to move in on him now. So it was it was basically just this and was starting to. Move in now because she's, she's getting what she wants from him. He's becoming susceptible and vulnerable. So this is the sinking moment where she says, "sink into the floor," and he sinks down. It's my understanding, based on interviews I've seen or read with Jordan Peele and Daniel Kaluuya and the makers of this film, uh, is that the sinking is representative of, like what I was talking about with Caleb Landry-Jones' character, only, uh, only, sort of like, how do you word this? Only like, viewing Daniel Kaluuya's character as, surface level, i.e. the colour of his skin. So with the sinking feeling, from my understanding, again, from what, what I've seen and heard and read, is that it's, again, I don't want to sound like I'm talking about this from any level of authority. I'm one of the whitest people on planet Earth. But it's supposedly representative of... The sinking feeling is, like, the, you know, the personality or the characteristic or or, you know, like, the self of the individual, you know, person of color feels like they have to sink back or is forced to sink back and hold back their true, you know, sense of self or characteristic or whatever to be welcomed into, um, you know, like uh, white society. Um, I hope I've worded that sensitively enough um and accurately enough Uh, but i'm pretty confident that's the social commentary aspect of it so what this film is doing so expertly is transferring that into a sort of horror scape in the sense of it you know being a a horror or thriller movie Um, so yeah it's like they're either not able to show their sort of I was going to say true colours but that's not supposed to sound as insensitive as it sounds uh, their, their true sense of self uh, either through fear of some sort of un you know ignorant or uneducated judgment from white people or some sort of sense of being uh, tarred with the with an inaccurate brush or something um i I really hope i'm wording this well and and doing the film justice and not sounding um ignorant or you know not sounding um you know like like authoritarian on any of these issues because of course i'm not and if i'm wrong about any of it uh, please feel free to educate me in any way um you know do it nicely but uh yeah um anyway uh, it's very powerful social commentary, at least from my experience what an effect as well, I'd love to know how they did this just from a sort of practical effect standpoint I'm pretty confident that Jordan Peele is a fan of practical effects so is this wire work? With a, um, uh, a big fan or something. So uncomfortable. So uncomfortable. Ah, oh, this scene with it, with the party is just littered with, like, inappropriateness towards Daniel Kaluuya's character. And all of it is based on his aesthetic. Heath Stanfield from the opening scene. Now all clean-shaven. Wearing different, very different stylistically clothes to what he was previously wearing. Different demeanour. The plot thickens. Something as well, actually, about the um, similar to that other Lakey Stanford thing. I'm pretty sure it's called "Thank You for Calling." Oh, let me double check, actually, just before I crack on with this point. Um, thankfully, I had IMDb open and I'm ready to go. So, sorry to bother you. It's called "Sorry to Bother." You. I knew it was something about like um, a play on words for like when you know, like a salesperson calls up and they're like. Oh, sorry to bother you. Uh, of course, it wouldn't be thank you for calling because that would imply the the person receiving the sales call is is grateful for the, the sales call. It's called Sorry to Bother You. Uh, that's the Lakeith Stanfield and Emma Thompson film I mentioned earlier. Um, great film, but uh, there's this sort of running like a joke or theme throughout the film that people like Lakeith Stanfield, when they're in the office making these sales calls, they have to adopt a... Uh, white voice, and uh, who is it that does Lakeith's, yeah, it's David Cross, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I love David Cross, if you don't know David Cross, he's, uh, he's normally bold with big glasses, um, and he's in anything from Men in Black uh, to Arrested Development, uh, he's He's in loads of stuff. He's one. Of, if you don't know him by name, he's one of those people when you see him, you go, oh, that dude, he's in everything. Um, but yeah, he has like one of those really kind of nasal white sounding voices and he does Lakeith Stanfield's white voice in Sorry to Bother You. Um, and I don't know if you've noticed, but every... Okay, again, spoiler alert if you haven't seen the film, but talking in the sort of broader context of this film, everyone that's been hypnotized and then put into the sunken place... <clears throat> By the hypnotist, the like you know anyone from the groundskeeper to um uh, the housekeeper, I can't remember her name um, and Lakeith Stanfield now, uh, like I said, different demeanor, different voice, different costume. Uh, they all have a more like white voice. so it's all sort of playing on the idea that when they're in the sunken place, they have to change elements of their personality. Or demeanor or anything to sort of you know be accepted or it's a defense mechanism because when they are their truer selves they're then subject to a lot of like ignorant comments or statements or stereotypes you know like if someone let's just broadly speaking say if someone of color is using slang and colloquialisms that opens the door for a lot of ignorant people to make assumptions about them any sort of assumptions it might seem it you know it might be really racially charged negative assumptions you know like just as an example like oh you're more prone to like thievery or something again really ignorant really racist not okay to think that but then it also could be other things that aren't okay to think or presume that the person presuming them or thinking them doesn't realize are racist because they're uh, what's that expression? Is it microaggressions? You know, it could be something like, um, oh, you must play basketball. And they're thinking that that's complimentary because it implies, like, that they're suggesting the person is of, you know, good physical stature or something. But it's ultimately an assumption based on that person's ethnicity. So is still under the sort of shroud or umbrella of ignorance. So... Yeah, um, I can't remember where I was taking that, but yeah, it's just interesting sort of plot device based on the actors' individual portrayals. It's good filmmaking. It's not, like I say, it's layers. It's it's in the script, and then it's up to the character, the actors, to execute those beats, and those plot points. It was an interesting cut just then, as he's talking to the blind art dealer, and it's the first like white person. Daniel Kaluuya's met at this party that isn't just, you know, doing all the shit I was just describing, just being like ignorant or overtly racist. Um, But there's kind of like an unwritten rule with screenwriting that you either start in the middle of a conversation or you cut away and leave in the middle of a conversation just for pace and sort of retaining audience attention i think more than anything else and it also helps get rid of a lot of unnecessary fluff or it can also help build suspense so for example if you cut away in the middle of a conversation and the conversation isn't resolved and the audience doesn't hear everything that plays out uh we're left curious as to what that is and then it can be used as you know a a plot twist or a big reveal later on um likewise if you start in the middle of a conversation you can get straight to the brass tacks and you know the the real importance without all the fluff of hey how are you how have you been long time no see anyway down to business you just straight down to business um and that that scene then just did that so he spoke to the art dealer um important information in terms of story and things was exchanged and character in terms of that art dealer's character he becomes relevant later on and then we cut away because there's no need for further pleasantries and and niceties so if you're writing scripts and stuff just bear that in mind because Jordan Peele knows what he's doing there's just a point as well from a writing perspective is it's really important when you're writing character to have every every character or every person or um demographic will have a certain way of speaking, so for example, the rich white people in this film <clears throat> are you know well spoken and fancy, and then you know the black people that get hypnotized and put into the sunken place adopt that way of speaking now he's on the phone to one of his friends um who's looking after his dog while he's away. They have a completely different way of speaking, more slang, more colloquialisms. So it's Jordan Peele is he's using that deliberately as a story mechanic. But just generally speaking, when you're writing story, you know, if you're writing like a white working class man, they're probably going to have like you know a certain amount of slang, but more like sort of poor grammar, or maybe a more narrow vocabulary, vocabulary maybe more um, vulgar, you know, cursing, things like that. It's stereotypical of me to say that, but, you know, you, you might lean into that, whereas if you're writing a character that was Eton or Oxford educated, they might be a lot be- uh, more well-spoken. Uh, you know, if you're, you get what I mean, that's enough examples. <sighs> Even then, such... Jordan Peele's writing and use of language is is fantastic and I don't mean language in terms of like he's writing in Spanish and English and French or whatever I just mean language in terms of phrasing and colloquialism so he says he's talking to Georgina about the housekeeper about um, unplugging his phone and she's coming to apologise and he said oh no it's cool I wasn't trying to rat you out and she's like rat you out what does that mean and he's like snitch and she's like tattletale so again it's You know, he's using more sort of urban colloquialisms and she's like, ah, Tattletail, a really sort of like white sounding thing. And it just reinforces her whole like the fact that she's, you know, hypnotized down to that sunken place. Yeah. This film is so well crafted. (laughs) What a performance from her in this scene. Uh, What is this actress's name? Uh, Just to go through that massive range. Betty Gabriel. Well done, Betty. Just to go through this massive range of emotions and expressions. Really good shit. See, straight away, he's just been introduced to some new people, majoritively white, and the first thing he is asked is about being African-American. This is, again, playing on that theme that I was talking about earlier of people only addressing Chris or... The wider commentary is like people of color in general that when, you know, normally when white people, if you if you don't have a lot of black friends or you don't hang around with a lot of black people or even, you know, other people of color, there does tend to be that stereotype of white people just only asking them things based on the color of their skin. And it doesn't, if you're, if you have good intentions, it might not seem to you as though it is racist or ignorant but it is racist or ignorant because it might not be overtly discriminatory or judgmental you know um, towards them based on their color but it is the fact that you're only you're only allowing their personality to exist within the fact that they are, are of color okay I think that's I think that's probably the best I've worded that point that I've been trying to make throughout this film. But that is what the reason I keep saying it again. I don't want to sound like I'm talking from any authority, but that is what this film is saying. That is the social commentary of this film. So that's why I keep coming back to it. Okay, cool. Look at the lighting in this scene. Um, comparatively to when I was talking about the opening scene where they were in the apartment, they were talking about um, race and uh, like the idea of her family being racist or anything. Um, There we go, that's a bit of shot. And uh, how soft and uh, almost like friendly the lighting was. Um, It was no harsh shadows or anything on their faces. And now uh, the story's ramping up a little bit. Some things have happened. There's been some tension and all that. And there's these, you know, very prominent shadows and and more harsher use of light, even though it's natural light, they're out in in the sun and things. But, you know, to the average audience member, it, you're like, oh, but sunlight on their faces and, and things. But it's very likely deliberate setup lighting rigs and things like that. They may have been very lucky and just had a really awesome, you know, sun in the perfect position with the perfect lighting and everything. But just knowing the nature of films, you know, filming this, this, uh, two hander scene between him and, and um Rose. Could it, her name wasn't Claire by the way. I don't know why I called her Claire earlier. Her name is Rose. Um Yeah, they may have been very lucky, but it's more likely that it is a deliberate setup lighting rig and it's created all these like shadows and harsh lines and things on, on their faces. So that brightness and, and and warmth and softness and sort of happiness and safety of that first scene with those two is very different now oh, i'm literally getting, i've seen this film already i'm literally getting like fucking heart palpitations the the sense of uh like the adrenaline and suspense building in this scene is so beautifully um constructed so uh like i've said before ten, uh suspense and tension is um i'm pretty sure tarantino said this because i can't not reference that guy Picture an elastic band, and the tighter and further and longer you can stretch out that elastic band, the more the suspense is, uh, you know, generated palpably. Palpably. So you've got so many things adding up here. Uh, There's the score in the background, which is like some awkward, sustained strings. Um, You've got Caleb Landry-Jones twirling the lacrosse stick, and then he's like juggling it between his hands, so it's like... which is like, that's a that's a weapon fundamentally. If he wanted to use it as such, he could use it as a weapon. So you've got that reminder of that there. You've got uh, Daniel Kaluuya's performance where he's showcasing um, nervousness and there's a quiver in his voice. His expressions are not, he's not chill right now. Um, you've got uh, Rose... Because we've just had a bit of a reveal from her where he's seen photographs of her with um, someone who is quite obviously uh, a partner who happens to be black, whereas it was established early on. She told Daniel Kaluuya that uh, he was her first black boyfriend. So but now we know that's a lie. There's also a photo of her there with uh, the housekeeper Georgina, is it Georgina? Whatever her name is, um, looking very different aesthetically to how she is in housekeeper mode similar to lakeith stanfield's character where he was more himself at the start and now he's been like whiteified uh with you know his little hat and shit um when he's in the hypnosis state uh then we've got the idea that he's being surrounded so the room to his left the father's just appeared down the hallway the mother's there with her teacup we're starting to hear that noise build up Caleb Landry Jones is blocking the doorway. The stairs, the only other route to salvation, Rose has still stood there blocking them. He's been surrounded. So you've got all these layers. Just, it's making me so anxious. And I know how this scene plays out because I've seen the film, but I'm still like, my heart was like, dude, Masterfully constructed scene. Symmetry. Look at that shot. What a shot. I fucking love cemeteries films. Just something about it's so satisfying. I will say she's doing a tremendous performance here because she's you utilizing a lot of emotion purely with her voice, and then her face is just like stoic and bored and uninteresting because she's you know she's lying and pretending to Rod. Um, on the phone to him pretending that she cares but just from an acting perspective that's incredibly hard to do to emote so strongly with your voice but leave your face completely stoic and like dormant the intense symmetry let's rewind so this music and then look how brutal the lighting is you know it's Relatively dark scene, but these very brutal lights. And this just looks... It it almost looks violent to me, you know? It's all the harsh angled lines within it, you know? It's very cold. You know, it's not inviting or comforting or warm in any way. Who the fuck uses candles in a fucking surgical procedure? That just seems dangerous. You because know, when the candle flickers the it plays with your vision a little bit. Just it all looks very cold and hostile and violent and there's no softness. There's no softness at all. All the lines, you know, this framework, these straps, this this isn't a nice neat circle, it's a uh what is that? An octagon, a pentagon, a hexagon to get again to get again. There's no softness anywhere. But it's symmetrical. This um, performance here from Caleb, he's hunching his back. He's raised one shoulder, and he's sort of slowly pushing this wheelchair through, and look at that determined, pensive stare that he's got going on, unblinking eyes, just focused. It's just all very unnerving, and then, you know, couple that with the very sort of epic but disturbing and unnerving score. The craftsmanship, dudes. Excellent use of not fully, not fully, you know, diving right into the violence by giving us a full shot of it, just using the reflection of his glasses as he removes the scalp. From the geezer to do the operation. It's cool. Because it's. I feel like it almost. I don't know if it's from a certification point of view. But you could like you know. Go from a 15 to an 18 or something. I don't know what the certification of this film is. What is it? It's 15. Yeah you could go easily go from a 15 to an 18. Um, Boom look at that shit. By uh, (coughs) giving us a full on violent shot of it. Um, So it might be that reason, but it's also, you know, look at even the red around the, uh, the glasses frame there. I don't know that there's likely some sort of red gelled light there to do that, but it's just, oh. I love films that go from absolutely no violence to just brutality at the, like, what do you call it, the kind of crescendo, I don't know, like, not that I'm some sort of sadist getting off on violence, but I really, it just makes the violence more shocking, so in the grand scheme of things, you know, this isn't like hostile or um, cannibal holocaust levels of violence, which are too absolute, like, torture porn, fuck cannibal holocaust, fuck that film, fuck that film, I won't get into it, but fuck that film, for so many reasons, fuck that film um but those those films are like legit torture porn where you get to see some of the most like brutal bits of violence ever put on screen what we've seen so far is he's caved in Caleb Landry Jones's head with um is it a bowls ball or something just some sort of solid sphere caved it in just hit him twice blood and then blood on the carpet that's it and then he's stabbed the dad With the um, the stags' horns, what they call horns, yeah, whatever antlers, he stabbed him with the stags' antlers, um, through the neck, and then we just had like this deep red blood sort of drip down um, from his neck onto his chest and things like that. So, in the grand scheme of things, not the most violent things you've ever seen in film or on film or in cinema, but the fact that it's such a not that it comes out of nowhere because obviously the film it it makes sense within the film that we lead up to this um but it essentially does come out of nowhere in the sense that there hasn't really been any other violence prior in the film like yeah they hit a deer early on but there was a little bit of blood on the on the bonnet and we only saw like a small amount of blood on the actual deer itself not overtly violent so it's much more shocking to the audience when you get these like you know these sort of these payoffs You know, so I really like that because it's more, um, it's not just like, you know, everybody says that Reservoir Dogs is like a really violent movie. There's not, there's no violence in it. Like, yeah, Tim Roth's shot in the belly and his T-shirt gets more and more soaked in blood as the film goes on. But up until the moment that he tortures the police officer and cuts his ear off and stuff, there's not really any violence in that film, if memory serves. You'll have to watch my podcast that I did on it to find out. Um, and then from there on you know more and more violence happens likewise with the hateful eight uh, which i will cover eventually the first half of the movie there's no violence and then from the second half of the movie onwards there's a shit ton so it's like the violence is more striking and shocking and more impactful to the audience and the execution of the story if it's not just littered throughout Um, and slight tangent that's not to say films where it is required that violence happens throughout, like, Saving Private Ryan. Totally different kettle of fish. Totally different kettle of fish. We know at this point this bitch is a bitch, and she sucks, and fuck this person. Fucking psychopath is sat there with a bowl of dry cereal and a separate glass of milk, and is individually picking up one piece of cereal, biting it in hot... The smallest, most bite-sized food in existence. She's biting that shit in half, sipping her milk separately. Psycho! Psy-fucking-co! This film, yo. This film. Damn. Yep, that film. Get Out. Wow. It's outstanding. It's so layered. It's... Not only is it just a straight-up thriller, like I was hopefully successfully uh, explaining without you know grandstanding or white explaining that like the social commentary is just it's it's like it's it's incredibly unique thought-provoking hopefully educational it was certainly educational to me the first time i watched it um in terms of the social commentary uh it's expertly crafted it's just an exemplary movie um yeah, I really love it. Jordan Peele is fucking insanely good. Um, yeah, so I'm gonna wrap it up there. I think it's just the credit roll from here, so there should be nothing left to talk about. Uh, and that that payoff, the it, that tends to be the thing with horror movies is sometimes the payoff, and you know the sort of crescendo and things sometimes leaves a little bit to uh, be desired, but it's definitely awesome in this film uh yeah so again please rate review subscribe you know follow spotify subscribe to youtube uh it should always just be at chatting script uh yeah follow the instagram and the twitter both at chatting script um comment on shit like shit just help your boy out and i hope you enjoyed that everybody Goodbye.